The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I started working on this message several weeks ago, and I fully intended that this would be the last message that we would have in our series on the Holy Spirit, and uh, this was intended to be an introduction to the last message, but as I began to work on it, the introduction got way too long, and so I discovered that I probably wouldn't have any way that I could finish uh, the fifth point of our outline in the allotted time that I would have, so I decided to split this introduction off and just to make an entire message out about, uh, of this. So this is the next to the last lesson, and it's actually a little interlude that comes between point number four and point number five of our outline. So you don't really have any bullet points tonight uh, on your sheet. You just have your notes that you can take there and uh, write things down and get ready for next week. But this is a bridge sermon, so to speak, that connects two thoughts together, the transition between point number four, which was the Holy Spirit is abused, and point number five, which comes next week, the Holy Spirit is activated in believers. Now, I'd like for you to look at Isaiah chapter six and into this uh, wonderful scripture that takes us into the presence of God, uh, the presence of God in heaven. Uh, This is Isaiah writing uh, that great prophet of the Old Testament who gives us such a clear look at the sacrificial atoning death of Christ in the 53rd chapter, he had this amazing vision of God in heaven in chapter 6. So in verse number 1 it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly." And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what I'd like to talk to you about tonight is the worship of the Holy Spirit. And this might seem like an odd place to put the subject, but as I've just told you, I originally planned that this would be the introduction to the next part of the outline. And I thought that this particular part of this naturally flowed out of the subject abuse of abuse of the Holy Spirit into what it means to be filled by the Holy Spirit. And so in our final study next week, we're going to go back to subject that I touched on lightly in a previous message, and that's the filling of the Spirit. And there we're going to take a little bit more of an extensive look into what it means to be filled with the Spirit, and I thought that would be a good place for us to end uh, this series. So if you take the Holy Spirit out of the abuse category and you want to see Him rightfully at work in your life, then uh, it'd be good for you to be here for that last message next week. So we've discussed four topics thus far in this study. The Holy Spirit is a person... The Holy Spirit is deity, the Holy Spirit is God's agent, and the Holy Spirit is abused. And that part number four, the Holy Spirit is abused, that led us into this long discussion about the charismatic movement, uh, which is what I believe to be just a blasphemous attack on the Spirit. Some have called the charismatic movement the modern-day blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that's what happens when you claim that the Holy Spirit does what he does not do, 
and uh, it just leads to his blasphemy. One author wrote this concerning uh, the aberrant doctrines that these people teach concerning the Holy Spirit. He said, Charismatics feel they have free license to abuse the Holy Spirit and even blaspheme his holy name, and they do it constantly. How do they do it? By attributing to the Holy Spirit words he didn't say, deeds he didn't do, and experiences that he didn't produce, attributing to the Holy Spirit that which is not the work of the Holy Spirit. Endless human experiences, emotional experiences, bizarre experiences, and demonic experiences are said to come from the Holy Spirit. Visions, revelations, voices from heaven, messages from the Spirit through transcendental means, dreams, speaking in tongues, prophecies, out-of-body experiences, trips to heaven, anointings, miracles, all false, all lies, all deceptions attributed falsely to the Holy Spirit. It's really a strong statement that he makes, and it's an accurate one. And we have this huge movement that just, quite frankly, is led by Satan, and it's injected itself into the mainstream of Christianity, and it's really done just a a horrible job of uh, destroying virtually all the correct teaching and understanding that millions of people could have about the Holy Spirit. And in many cases, I believe that it becomes so confusing to people that it can become an issue of salvation, that you can become so mixed up about the Holy Spirit's work and what he doesn't do that you actually miss the real working of the Holy Spirit, and that's to work in a sinner's heart and convince and convert that sinner uh, to be saved, to trust in Jesus Christ. And so I believe that there are extreme forms of the charismatic movement that are so seriously wrong that there's no saved person that could be guilty of propagating that movement. And so in other words, I don't believe that many of these people are saved. And I know that there are others that are much more charitable about that than I, and I'm not really talking about those who aren't uh, complete cessationists as I am, but I'm talking about those like Benny Hinn and Kenneth Copeland, uh, Kenneth Hagen, and others. And I, I, I think I could throw in there also that uh, wicked Jezebel Joyce Meyer. I think she's in the group as well. And I know that there are many of you, some of you perhaps, I think, that that watch her and you've listened to her at times. And and as I say, there's some of you that uh, have listened to Joyce Meyer and you may find some things that are appealing and some things that are right. Uh, I listened to her a little bit this afternoon. I don't know why. Uh, I I must have wanted to torture myself or something, but I listened to her for just a little while. And it didn't take about five minutes for me to find her say something that was heretical. But you find things that she says that are right, and uh, as I talked about last week, that Satan manipulates Scripture, and he rarely announces some strong heretical doctrine right out front, but rather what he does is to allow people to wade into their ankles and then up to their knees, and then the next step that they take is into a hole that just sinks them into terrible heresy. So I would put Joyce Meyer into that group and others, and I find it very hard to believe that they could actually be born-again believers. And I know that I can't judge another person's soul, but looking at the practices of those people, uh, just a group of charlatans that they are and the things that they teach, I cannot see how the Holy Spirit could be in them. They couldn't teach those things and have the Holy Spirit in them. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit in you, you can't be a saved person. So I don't think the Holy Spirit would lead people into all those kinds of wild aberrations, but rather what the Spirit does is he saves people out of that kind of confusion. But in that mass confusion, 
and this false exaltation of the Holy Spirit, there's almost always one key ingredient that's missing from it, and that is the exaltation of Jesus Christ. You don't hear very much said about Jesus Christ. Now, nowhere in the Scriptures are we told that we are to be like the Holy Spirit. Now, there is so much talk about the Holy Spirit and what He's doing, and yet the Bible does not tell us in any place that we are to model our lives after the Holy Spirit. But we do find plenty of places in Scripture where it tells us that we're to be like Christ. The Apostle Paul said, "...be followers of me, even as I also am of Christ." And we see that there was more than the purpose of Christ coming into the world to die, even though that's the most important purpose that he came for, and to enable us to go to heaven, to die for our sins. He came to die, but he also came here to live. And for 33 years, he lived on the earth, and he gave us a pattern to follow. And as we follow that pattern, and as we see the glory of Christ, the Holy Spirit silently transforms us into that image of Christ. This is what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. He said, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. And so you don't have to go around trumpeting the work of the Holy Spirit because, and inventing things for him to do because he has plenty to do. He's busy all of the time, and what he's doing is taking Christian people, those who have their souls yielded to Christ, and he forms them into the likeness of Christ. Now, the point that I'm building to here is twofold. One is a positive point, and the other is negative. The positive aspect of this is what we find in Ephesians 5.18, which is the filling of the Spirit, and that's what we're going to talk about next week. And that filling of the Spirit is what leads us into personal exaltation of Christ and modeling our lives after Him. And then the negative aspect is what all of this hullabaloo about the Holy Spirit has done to the true worship of the Spirit. And one of the things that it's done is to scare true Bible believers away from the worship of the Spirit. Now, we we get this feeling that we don't want to be guilty of joining in with the charismatic movement and going too far one way and, and becoming a part of all of that. And at the same time, what we might do is we go too far the opposite direction and we actually abandon the worship of the Holy Spirit altogether. Arthur Pink has a great treatment of this in his book on the Holy Spirit, and I'll use a few of his comments tonight in consideration of this as we discuss worship of the Holy Spirit. Now, we have a passage in John chapter 16, and one that we've looked at several times in our study, and we use this particular passage to clarify the Holy Spirit's work and to put it into the right perspective, especially when we talk about something like the charismatic movement. In the midst of Jesus' final teachings to his disciples, he spoke of the coming of the Spirit, and he said in John 16, Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. We take those two verses and use them to refute the charismatic movement by saying that it's the work of the Holy Spirit not to exalt himself um, as they would do, but rather that the Holy Spirit exalts Christ and the work that he does in redemption. That the Holy Spirit takes the redemptive work of Christ and he uses that to regenerate the lost sinner and bring him to repentance and faith. 
But as we look at that, we often go too far the other way. And because the Holy Spirit does not really put his work up front and make that the center of everything that's taking place, that we shove the Holy Spirit aside. That we look at his work as a secretive work in regeneration, which is what John 3, 8 points out to us. And we look at that secretive work and, and we feel like we're, we're not to speak too much about the Holy Spirit and we're not to consider him as an object of worship. And so there are some who will exclude worship of the Holy Spirit, saying that it's wrong to praise and glorify Him. But there's a problem in that. And the problem is that the Holy Spirit is God, that He's a part of the Trinity. And the different persons of the Trinity are all co-equal. They are co-eternal. They are co-substantial. And so if you praise and glorify one, you must praise and glorify all. Now, this is the purpose, then, of me having you turn to Isaiah chapter 6, because there Isaiah is given a vision of the throne of God in heaven, and he sees the Lord sitting on the throne. And he says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Now, I confess that I cannot give to you a description of what, a detailed description of what Isaiah saw. I can't give you a graphic picture of what God looked like on that throne when Isaiah saw him. But I do believe, by reading this scripture, that there is a proclamation, a manifestation of the Trinity of God. Now, I don't know how, the, how he is able to do that, how God would show himself in that way, but the Trinity is actually represented in that scripture, and we see... We see it in a couple of places, and one of those is in the refrain that's spoken by the seraphim. Now, in case you don't know who the seraphim are, they are a special order of angels. This is what Isaiah says that he saw there. He saw the seraphim that were in the presence of God. They're a special order of angels, and it seems to be their duty to be in the throne room of God all the time, praising God and glorifying Him. Now, we notice here in verse 3 that they speak a refrain, and the most important words that they speak is, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Calvin points out that there are some ancient writers that use this particular verse to prove that God is a trinity that exists in three persons, that each holy corresponds to one person of the trinity. And often you'll hear sermons on this subject and you'll hear sometimes this expression used that God is a thrice holy God. So it's evident that these seraphim in heaven are worshiping God as a trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're inseparable in worship. And if you look in verse number 8, you can see the trinity expressed as God speaks here. He says, also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. God says, who will go for us? Now that's an obvious reference to the three persons of the Godhead. Now as we think about angels, do you, do you know something that, that's peculiar about angels? Since the fall of Satan and since that initial rebellion when there were just uh, a vast number, a multitude of angels that fell... Those angels that did not follow Satan in the rebellion have been confirmed in a sinless state. That means that it is impossible for another angel to fall. There can't be another fallen angel. And those that did not fall are the holy elect angels, and every activity that they do is in perfect accord with the will of God. So they're always doing the bidding of God, 
So if God demands worship from them, you can be sure of this, that the angels will worship God and they will do it in holiness and in perfection. They do it exactly the way that God wants to be worshipped. And so if the holy angels uh, cannot, that cannot sin, that they worship the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, how could we possibly say that it's wrong for us to worship the Holy Spirit? I mean, if this is an activity of heaven... Is it wrong for us to do on earth what is done in heaven? Well, you'd have a hard time with that because Jesus said when he gave the model prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so the activity of angels in heaven becomes a model for those of us on earth. And further, that command of Jesus uh, gives an imperative that we worship as they worship. So God's not busy trying to confuse us about worship and trying to separate, separate out the different persons of the Godhead so that we elevate one for worship or two for worship and not elevate the third for worship. God's not trying to confuse us with that. And if we try to step into that and think that we can separate all of that out and give worship to two and not to the third, then we're going into an area that we absolutely do not have any understanding. Now, if you could think back... Uh, several months to the third part of our discussion, the third major point that we covered was the Holy Spirit is God's agent. And the first subtopic of that discussion was that the Holy Spirit is the agent in the ministry of creation. That it is the Lord God who made everything, and of course the Lord God made us. In the Psalms, we're commanded to worship God that made us. Psalm 95 says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Well, if you remember, we asked the question, Who is the Lord, our Maker? Because you read Scripture, and in some places it appears to tell us that the Father is the Maker, that He's the Creator. In the book of Colossians uh, 1.16, the Apostle Paul very clearly tells us there that it was Jesus who created all things that are visible and invisible. Then the Apostle John the one who's called the beloved of the Lord. John said, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So there we have God the Father, and we have Jesus Christ. They are agents in creation, but we also learn this, that the Holy Spirit, though, is specifically the agent that is the one who made all things and made us. Now, in Job, the Bible says, The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath, and the word breath there is the same as spirit, and the breath of the Almighty has given me life. So what does that tell us? Well, it tells us that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are an indivisible trinity, that you can't separate them out even in the work of creation. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all involved in that. So I can't say, well, today we're going to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, but we won't glorify the Holy Spirit. I can't do that. The only thing I can say is, soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory, and I include all three persons of the Trinity. Well, that might raise some other thoughts on the subject. What about prayer? Are we forbidden to pray to the Holy Spirit? Well, in one sense, we've already answered that objection that if you pray to the Father, you're also praying to Christ, and you would also be praying to the Spirit. But you've heard me say, especially a few months ago, or maybe in a year or so ago, longer than that maybe, uh, as we were going through the Lord's Prayer, that I taught you that the proper way to pray is to pray to the Father and to pray in the name of Jesus Christ. 
And of course, when I say that, I'm only following the instructions that Jesus gave because he started out the model prayer, Our Father, which art in heaven. And in John 14, 14, Jesus said, If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Well, does that mean that we are prohibited from praying directly to the Holy Spirit? Well, I'm going to look at that for just a few minutes. Let me direct your attention to 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 5. And there, there are some connections that we can make here as to what's been said previously about the word Lord, whether the word Lord represents all of the Trinity as it does in the book of Isaiah. When Jesus said to pray to the Father, he did not say pray to the Holy Spirit. But is there an exclusionary rule there? Well, in Second Thessalonians, Paul speaks to confused believers about the second coming of Christ. Because of the extreme persecution that they were enduring, they thought that they had missed Christ's second coming. And they really believed that they were living during the tribulation. But Paul instructed them about the revelation of the Antichrist, and he told them, no, you're not living in that time. Uh, You'll recognize that. I mean, it'll be recognized. Christ will come back, and then the man of sin will be revealed. And so he shows them that they're not really living in that time. And then in the end of the letter, he instructs them to pray. And in verse number 1, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1, he says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. Then he says in verses 4 and 5, And we have confidence in the Lord touching you that ye both do and will do the things which we command you. And the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and to the patient waiting of Christ. So we have there the word Lord, and he says, direct your hearts into the love of God, and that would be a reference to God the Father, and into the patient waiting of Jesus Christ. So whether you recognize it or not, there we have a verse on the Trinity. Now, let's see if we can put it together. What is the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, Christ is not now in the world, and the Father's not in the world. So who is it that directs our lives and leads us into truth? Well, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. According to what we just read in John chapter 16, it's the work of the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us into all truth. Well, the Thessalonians needed to be guided into truth, and they needed to understand the love of God, that although they were being persecuted, that God hadn't forgotten them, that God knew exactly what they were going through. As we study in in Matthew and other places, it tells us that the Heavenly Father knows every need that we have, And they needed to learn that. And then they also needed to learn to wait patiently upon the coming of Christ. So who did Paul pray to that they might receive that kind of understanding and patience? Well, he prayed to the Holy Spirit because that's the kind of work that the Holy Spirit does. Now, as Pink says, he it is who communicates God's love to us and he it is who stirs us up to the performance of duty by inflaming our hearts with apprehensions of God's tenderness toward us and for this we are to pray to him. It is just as though the apostle said, O thou Lord, the Spirit, warm our cold hearts with a renewed sense of God's tender regard for us. Stabilize our fretful souls into a patient waiting for Christ. So we're not excluded from praying to the Holy Spirit. But as we pray, we need to recognize the peculiar workings of the Spirit within the Godhead. Obviously, this is not a prayer that you would pray. You would not pray, Oh, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come 
and ride on the white horse and establish your kingdom over the whole earth. Well, God is going to establish his kingdom over the whole earth, and the Holy Spirit will be there, but the Holy Spirit is not the one who comes riding on the right horse. We learn in the book of Revelation that that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So rather than an exclusion of praying to the Spirit, we need to learn to pray to the Spirit uh, in the knowledge or pray to the persons of the Godhead in knowledge of what we're praying for. Now, sometimes we get mixed up about this. Our, our knowledge is not perfect. And so the Holy Spirit corrects the prayers that we pray so they get to the place that they're supposed to go. Uh, and if these are prayers that are prayed with the right intent, God's not sitting in heaven trying to swat down our prayers so they don't get to him. Now, there are plenty of prayers that God stops before they ever get to him. And in fact, most prayers are that way. Those who pray without the knowledge of Christ, those that are lost, when they pray, their prayers don't get any higher than the ceiling. And when you pray, when you pray for, in selfishness and when you pray in your lust, those prayers are never going to make it. But when a prayer is prayed with a sincere heart and with a faithful heart and with a trusting heart, it reaches the intended destination through the aid of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me show you another example of prayer using the word Lord, where we know that it must be intended for the Holy Spirit. Now, see if you can find the book of Matthew, chapter 9. Now, it's going to be hard for you because we never look at the book of Matthew. But Matthew, chapter 9, one of the things that we've been doing is we've been praying for soul winners. Uh, we have our outreach ministry on Wednesday night. We've been praying that God would send us more people that would come and join in that soul winning effort. So who are we to pray for or pray to that God would give us soul winners? Well, look at Jesus' instructions in Matthew chapter 9, and we'll start at verse number 35. Matthew 9, 35. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he to his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the labors are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Jesus said, Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Well, most of the time when we look at that, we would see Jesus who says this, and we would think that when we're praying to the Lord of the harvest, that we're praying to Jesus. Now, when he was here, he was the one who selected the disciples that would be the first workers in the harvest, and Jesus saved people while he was here. And so we would think that while Jesus was working with unbelievers and saving people, that the person that we would pray to about the harvest would be him. But Jesus has gone back to heaven and there is an agent in this that we're to call upon who is the one who appoints workers to the harvest. Well, who would that be? Well, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. When the first missionaries were sent out of the church, the Holy Spirit said, Give me men for the work that I've called them to do. Now, we find uh, the answer to this question, is it the Holy Spirit that we pray to for this, in the book of Acts, and there, there were two men that were selected to be missionaries. These were in the church of Antioch. And in Acts 13, 2, it says, And they, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And then in verse 4, So they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, 
departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed unto Cyprus. So if we go back to Matthew 9, verse 38, Jesus said, Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers. So who then is the Lord of the harvest? Well, that would be the Holy Spirit. He's the one that appoints the work. He's the one that equips the laborers. He's the one that empowers the laborers. He blesses their work. He regenerates and he converts those that are in the harvest. And we know that the Holy Spirit is a part of that great commission that God has given. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So that shows us that the word Lord there is a reference actually to the Holy Spirit that he's the one that's prayed to and worshipped. So what we need then is to know specifically who is in charge of the area that we're praying for. Now let me give you one last notation before we're done, and uh, I think you see why that I decided to make a message out of the introduction, not tack that on to point number five. We'd be here a long time. But one more observation. Have you noticed this, that we do worship the Lord at Berean? or worship the Holy Spirit, I should say. Uh, We don't speak in tongues. I don't speak in tongues. I don't heal people uh, from this platform. I don't blow the Holy Spirit on anyone. I don't claim that I receive revelations from God, some special thing that comes from Him. If I said those things, that wouldn't be the worship of the Holy Spirit. That would be blasphemy. So we don't do that. But we've not forgotten the Holy Spirit in worship. And we implore him directly in our worship. In a few minutes, our, our song of praise and prayer will be directed to him as we sing, Come, Holy Spirit. Sometimes we sing, Holy Spirit, thou art welcome in this place. In fact, we sing that a lot of times. We've been singing it for the last 13 years uh, at the end of the Sunday morning service. Holy Spirit, uh, thou art welcome in this place. And then we sing, Come, Holy Spirit, I need thee. Come, sweet spirit, I pray. So we've not excluded the Holy Spirit from praise and prayers and worship. And that's as it should be, because we are commanded to worship the one that created us. The seraphim cry, holy, holy, holy. And did you know that each of us, as the children of God, we have been created to be higher than the seraphim when we get to heaven? In Revelation chapter 4, it says, And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Now that's talking about the seraphim, the very same thing that Isaiah saw in chapter 6 of Isaiah. And when those beasts, and that means when those angels give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created." Those 24 elders that are in heaven represent all of the redeemed in all ages. Old Testament and New Testament, all of the redeemed of God. And they worship and they praise Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's an activity of heaven. And so we're to do God's will on earth as God's will is done in heaven. So when we worship, we want to worship Father, Son, 
and Holy Spirit. And so shall the will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time we've had together tonight in your word. We thank you for the Holy Spirit, for his work that he does among your people, how he guides, directs, leads us into truth, how he convicts our hearts of sin, how he molds us into the image of Jesus Christ. And we certainly do want to give him all the respect, all the worship, all the glory that he deserves. And so, Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be among us tonight. May we consider what's been said and know that we are to give supreme worship to both Father or to all Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to praise your name forever and never to be blasphemous about anything that we do concerning the the Holy Trinity, the Godhead. Help us, Father, to serve you acceptably, to worship you in the right way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.